guys for leading us in worship this morning. John Stott wrote an article a number of years ago titled, The Greatest Invitation Ever Made. He began with the following. All of us enjoy receiving invitations to a meal, a wedding, or a concert. Usually when the invitation is printed on a little card, there are cryptic letters written at the bottom, RSVP. We know what those letters mean. They are an abbreviation of a French request to reply to the invitation. Unfortunately, not everyone knows that. One couple who had found political asylum in America were not versed in American culture. He writes that one day they received an invitation to a wedding, and at the bottom of that invitation, sure enough, were those letters R-S-V-P. They had no idea what they stood for. The husband finally came up with the idea that there was actually a spelling mistake. And the V should have been a W, and what it really meant was, remember, send wedding presents. (laughs) He assumed the RSVP was a demand rather than an invitation. How often do you think people make that same mistake when it comes to Jesus Christ or the gospel? They think it's a demand rather than an invitation. An invitation that is anticipating a response. It's an RSVP invitation. Invitations call for a response. This morning we're coming to the end of John chapter 7. You'll remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem participating in the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. Same thing. This was a seven-day annual feast It was one of three that required all Jewish males to come to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord in in the temple, according to Leviticus chapter 23. The others were the Passover, and then seven weeks after the Passover was the Festival of Weeks, and then this Festival of Booths was in the fall of the year, sometime in late September or early October. This festival of booze was ordained by God so that the Israelites would never forget his supernatural intervention that allowed them to escape Egypt and then travel through the wilderness for 40 years and all of his provisions that enabled them to do that so that they could come to the promised land. This festival set the stage on which John chapter 7 was being played out. Last week, we considered some of the questions that surrounded Jesus' claim concerning his own personal identity, and then a self-disclosure about his future plans. The questions came from three distinct groups, from the residents of Jerusalem, from those who were believing in him, and from the Jews. And we noted that their questions really disclosed what was in their hearts. And you and I were challenged with the idea that our questions or lack of questions really disclose what is in our hearts. 
But this morning we want to continue and finish up this chapter by looking at verses 37 through to the end of verse 52. And in these verses we will discover that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone, but not everyone is for the gospel. If you're able, please stand with me this morning for the reading from God's Word. Beginning at verse 37 of John chapter 7. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not, going, is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. May God help us to understand and apply this passage of Scripture to where we live and work and play. You may be seated. In the words of the psalmist, we lift our eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. We keep looking to the Lord our God for his mercy. Just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a slave girl watches her mistress for the slightest signal, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy. Teach us. Reprove us. Correct us. Train us in righteousness, we pray, so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work, 
and use this specific passage from John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus to do just that. May your spirit, who indwells every believer, enlighten us so that your thoughts become our thoughts. Enable us to grasp what you have for us in this passage of Scripture, and not just intellectually, but practically. Help us to wrestle with the implications of this story so that we're not merely hearers, but doers of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Invitations call for a response. The gospel is for everyone. And in verses 37 to 39, Jesus invited the crowd to believe in him so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Allow me to give you three C's that I want us to keep in mind as we examine these verses this morning. I want us to remember the ceremony, the call, and the content. Three C's. Let me first talk about a well-established ceremony that was attached to this festival of booths. Although not biblically mandated, this ceremony or ritual tradition had become an important part of this festival of booths. Reminds me of another story. A husband and his wife were in their kitchen. The husband was sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper while his wife was preparing a ham for the Thanksgiving dinner. The husband watched the wife as she cut off about one inch of the ham from each end. He asked her, why are you cutting off the end of that ham? It's, it seems like it's a waste of good meat. And she said, well, that's the way my mother always did it. The husband asked, why did your mother cut off the end of the ham? And she said, I don't really know. Later, the wife called her mom to find out why she cut off the ham at each end before putting it in the roasting pan. And she said, I don't really know. That's the way my mother always did it. So later, she called her grandfather. The grandmother had died a few years previously. And so she said, Grandpa, why did mom, Grandma cut off the ends of the ham? He was silent as he thought for a moment, and then replied, So the ham could fit in the roaster? <laughs> I'm not sure how this ritual or tradition got started, but on every day of the Feast of Booze, the high priest would make his way to the, the pool of Shiloh, dip in a pitcher, take a pitcher of water, and lead a parade back toward the temple. And as he approached the water gate, they would sound the trumpet, three blasts to announce his arrival. Once in the temple, the priests would march around the altar. The choir would be singing the Hallel, 
which is Psalm 113 to 118. It formed a, a chorus book. There's psalms of, of praise that were used at these festivals. And the, the congregation would be reciting Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Or if they were using the New Living Translation, with joy you will drink deeply of the fountain of salvation. They'd be reciting that over and over again. And as they marched around the altar seven times, on the seventh time the priest would stop and we would pour out the pitcher of water on the ground as an offering to God. Remembering the water from the rock in the wilderness, the water that he provided for the harvest that was just brought into the barns, and also his blessing that they anticipated in the messianic kingdom. Past, present, future. That ceremony of pouring out the water. Now I'm not sure it was at that exact moment when Jesus stood up to make his public announcement. But you have to admit, it would have created quite the backdrop. Jesus' announcement was no doubt delivered in a timely manner, at just the right time. Having watched these priests do this parade for the last seven days, Jesus makes announcement. And you and I know that timing can be everything. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 23 advises, A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. This repeated ceremony as part of the festival of booze presented the ideal backdrop for Jesus to make his public announcement. That was the ceremony. What about the call? Some of you may recall from last week's message that the Apostle John uses the word that we translate, cried out, always preceding a very important announcement. For example, in John chapter 1, verse 15, it is used of John the Baptist when he was crying out his identification of Jesus as the one who was to come after him whose sandals he was not fit to untie. In other words, the Messiah. In John chapter 19, it is used again of the priests and officers. So when the priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! So when Jesus stood up to make this announcement in the temple. It was an important public announcement. He was crying out with conviction and passion. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine being part of the crowd that day? It was a public announcement. Intended for anyone and everyone within hearing distance. The ceremony set the stage 
The call was a public announcement. Now notice the content of the announcement. There was a progression. Thirst, come, drink. That progression is significant. There's an old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink. There's truth in that statement. If they were not thirsty, what do you suppose they would have done with Jesus' announcement? Thrown it away. In verse 38, Jesus claims that his invitation is based on an Old Testament scripture. Now, there is no chapter and verse that we can turn to in the Old Testament because Jesus is not quoting a specific passage. However, there are several Old Testament passages that support what Jesus is attempting to communicate. Let me give you just a couple. We've already referred to Isaiah 23, or 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. The Lord promised the Israelites, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Here in verse 39 of John chapter 7, the Apostle John clarifies exactly what Jesus was meaning in his announcement. In fact, some of your translations will have verse 39 in parentheses. John wanted to be sure that the readers would understand that Jesus was making a promise, a promise that would be fulfilled following his death, resurrection, and ascension, his glorification. Look at verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, by, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That promise was issued earlier by an Old Testament prophet by the name of Joel. Listen to the words of Joel's prophecy in chapter 2, verses 28 and verse 29. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So Jesus' invitation was based on an Old Testament scripture promising the gift of the Holy Spirit that would indwell all believers following his glorification. The ceremony, the call, and the content of Jesus' public announcement combined to form an RSVP invitation. You see, the gospel is invitational. Jesus invited anyone, 
anyone who was thirsty. Thirst was the only requirement. The prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration, the Spirit of God wrote these words. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised David. Will you come? Listen again to John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who will believe in his name. Will you receive him? Will you believe in his name? Here's another invitation from the lips of Jesus himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Will you come? God's desire is that we would all come to him. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The implication, application, is simple. Hear it. Hear it. Hear Jesus' invitation. Take it personally. Are you thirsty? Come. Drink. Invitations call for a response. The gospel is for everyone. And that includes you and me. But not everyone is for the gospel. The rest of this chapter provides some alternative responses to Jesus' invitation. Needless to say, the responses to Jesus' invitation are mixed. I've divided the respondents into two groups. First, we have the reaction of a religious crowd, and then we have the reaction of the religious leadership. And I think it's safe to say that Jesus' invitees were all God fears on this occasion. After all, they're, they're all participating in the festival of booze. I'm going to move through these alternative responses rather quickly, so you may want to buckle up and hang on. Here are the alternative responses that we find in this religious crowd. First of all, we have this certainly is the prophet response in verse 40. Now these respondents, they knew the Torah. They knew their Bibles inside and out. They were convinced that Jesus was the one to whom Moses was referring to back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb, 
on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. We could say that these respondents here in John chapter 7 knew a lot about Jesus, but they didn't know him. I would like to suggest that our churches today are full of those kinds of people. We know a lot about Jesus, but we don't know him. Then there is the, this is the Christ response found in the first part of verse 41. Now these folks were closer to believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But they were still anticipating a political Messiah. One who would come and deliver them from the Roman occupation once and for all. Again, we evangelicals have our fair share of political activists today, don't we? In the second half of verse 41 and on into verse 42, we have the surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee response. These folks represented those who are happy to formulate their opinions of Jesus based on assumption and hearsay. They're the kind of people who refuse to invest any kind of time or effort in discovering Jesus' true identity on their own by studying the Word. They may not avoid church, but they see church as just another social encounter, an opportunity to meet with friends and family and associates. Finally, in verse 44, we come to those who want to seize him, the seize him response. And there will always be those who not only reject Jesus, but they want to prevent everyone else from never hearing from the man. Unless something changes, I think this segment of our Canadian culture will continue to grow. Tolerance for a Christian worldview seems to be waning as our culture slides further down that Romans chapter 1 slide away from God. But it just isn't the religious crowd where we find this division of response toward Jesus. The religious leaders offer three more alternative responses. We have the officer's response, the Pharisee's response, and last but not least, Nicodemus's response. The officers' response, well, they were 
just standing in awe of what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, the Pharisees said to the officers, why did you not bring him? Because earlier in the chapter, remember the the Pharisees had sent these officers to seize Jesus. And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Be careful, friends. Be careful. Religious leaders like used car salesmen can be quite the smooth talkers. Even the great Apostle Paul claimed that he did not come with persuasive words, but in weakness, in fear, in trembling. In the last days, we have been warned that some people will develop a fatal case of ear tickling. They will want those to communicate things that will make them feel good. These officers, or people like them, are impressed with his presentation. We've got lots of those impressive presentations that lack the truth. The Pharisees' response was, if nothing else, consistent. They represented Jesus' official opposition. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. Has he? The answer is implied, absolutely not. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Wow. How's that for some academic arrogance? The Pharisees saw themselves, and I've used it several times, as God's self-appointed watchdogs. As if God couldn't defend them himself, they needed to step up and stand guard. They had it all figured out. They were arrogant. And as the story unfolds, they end up playing the lead role in putting Israel's Messiah to death. Their response was based on a competitive spirit. They wanted to be the top dogs. Finally, there is Nicodemus's response. You'll recognize the name as one that came to Jesus by night, back in John chapter 3. At that time, he was identified as the teacher of Israel. This guy was a heavyweight. Here in John chapter 7, he appears to come to Jesus' defense, arguing on the basis of a legal technicality. 
Look at verses 52, or verse 50. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We might accurately refer to Nicodemus as a Jesus sympathizer. But Jesus isn't looking for sympathizers. He's looking for thirsty people who come to him and drink. However, what Nicodemus does demonstrate is that the Pharisees' opposition may not be as united as they thought they were. There are some cracks beginning to form in this official opposition. Folks, there's seven potential alternative responses to Jesus' invitation. And needless to say, they all fall short of the RSVP Jesus requires in response to his, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink invitation. But what we must recognize in these alternative responses is that the gospel is divisive. Did you notice verse 43? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And it is as true today as it was in Jesus' day. Our response to the gospel, to Jesus' invitation, will divide us. An acceptance of Jesus' invitation will most certainly place us in the minority. And we can't say that we've never been warned. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. They're sobering. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Again in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 52, Luke reports a similar message. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, 
and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. These are hard sayings. And no one ever promised it would be easy. Remember the end of John chapter 6, verse 66? As a result of this, hard sayings, many of his disciples withdrew. We're not walking with him anymore. Are you thirsty? Come to him and drink. The promise is found in verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, plural, rivers of living water. Accept it. Accept the invitation. And then share it with others. How do we accept the gospel? by turning from your sinful ways. Stop looking for those things, for those rivers of living water in the things of this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life you will not find rivers of living water there. Turn from your sinful ways. Acknowledge that you're incapable of living up to the standard of perfection that God requires for relationship with him. We're all in the same boat. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the standard of perfection that God requires. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 said, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Acknowledge that you're incapable of living up to the standard of perfection. And then believe that Jesus was who he claimed he was, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Believe that with all your heart. And Romans chapter 10, verse 9 reads, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.
And once we accept Jesus' invitation, we become his ambassadors, his representatives, sharing that invitation with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. Apostle Paul gives a great explanation here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Leighton Leighton Ford, a colleague of Billy Graham, served with the Billy Graham Association for years, tells this story. I was speaking at an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Billy Graham was to speak the next night and arrived early. He came incognito and sat in the grass at the rear of the crowd. Because he was wearing a baseball hat and dark glasses, nobody recognized him. Directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who seemed to be listening and really engaged in my presentation. When I invited people to come forward as, the, as an open sign of commitment, Billy decided to do a little personal evangelism. He tapped the man on the shoulder and asked him, Would you like to accept Christ? I'll be glad to walk down with you if you want. The old man looked at him up and down, thought it over for a moment, and then said, Nah, I think I'll just wait until the big gun comes tomorrow night. Billy and I have had several good chuckles over that incident. Unfortunately, It underlines how in the minds of many people evangelism is the task for the big guns, not the little shots. Folks, you and I are the little shots that have been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. Invitations call for response. The gospel, it's for everyone. But not everyone is for the gospel. I beg you, hear it, accept it, share it with everyone and anyone who will take the time 
to listen. It can make a difference. It will count for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your grace. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For those who have not responded to your invitation, I would pray that today would be that day. For those who have responded, may we continue to grow in our faith. Enable us to be both faithful and effective ambassadors who represent you well this week in our words and deeds, in our actions, in our reactions. May others see Jesus in us so that we can be credible witnesses by your power and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.